Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I am so delighted today to have Dr. Michael Colgan with us. He is a biochemist and physiologist and a nutritionist who is also a writer and author of so many books and the founder of the Colgan Institute in Canada and in New Zealand. He is the author of so many anti-aging books and health books that are so cutting edge. I heard about him years ago, and if you don't know about him, you really need to be listening to Dr. Michael Colgan. He has written The Perimenopause Solution along with his wife, Leslie Colgan, Strong Bones, Save Your Brain, Nutrition for Champions, You Can Prevent Cancer, The Sports Nutrition Guide, Beat Arthritis, Protect Your Prostate, Hormonal Health, The New Nutrition, Perfect Posture Booklet, The Right Protein Booklet, Creatin for Muscle and Strength, Essential Fats for Athletes booklet. It goes on and on and on. He's also very well known for the new Power Program, which is a sports program and a training program. He's extremely articulate and knowledgeable. He's helped people all over the world in every industry. Many, many athletes come to him because Dr. Colgan represents one of the highest levels of synthesized knowledge in this area. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome my beloved guest, Dr. Michael Colgan, to its rainmaking time. Thank you so much. Good morning. I'm so delighted. It's been seven years since we've had a chance to talk. So I'm delighted. I've just completed your two books, Save Your Brain, which I want to talk about in Nutrition for Champions, the 100-year diet that will keep you lean for life. Let's talk about the chronic inflammation in the body and in the brain that you're so concerned about. Yes. Everyone who's turned 40 will know that their joints and things don't work quite as well as they used to. There's always a little inch, an ache of pain, pain, stiffness, all sorts of things that never happened when they were 25. And that is because of chronic inflammation. Inflammation gradually builds up in the body and in the brain. In uh, the book Save Your Brain, I talk about the chronic inflammation in the brain and how it gradually leads to the destruction of the brain so that in the 60s and 70s, people start to lose their memory and their cognition. But the same thing happens in the body as well. By the time you're 60 or 70, you start to lose your joints because the inflammation has destroyed the cartilage. And uh, it's, it's nothing to do with a particular disease, although it may be caused, called osteoarthritis or something else. It's really chronic inflammation that's built up since you were about 40 years old. My mother passed away two years ago from Alzheimer's, and it was a very traumatic 10 years with her. I have to tell you, and for families who deal with this, let alone for the person themselves, that at first has some cognition that something's going, and then all of a sudden it creeps up on them, and their ability to do anything more than stay in the present is gone. Yes. Uh, Last year, I presented at uh, Cambridge University at one of the top conferences in the world. And amongst the scientists there, there is very much the growing feeling that around about 90% of Alzheimer's and other forms of senility are preventable. But we don't do it yet. Why don't we do it? Um, Because it, it, it requires people to change their lifestyle. And that is extremely difficult for uh, any government health policy to achieve. People just are resistant to changing their lifestyle. They'd rather take a pill for an ache or pain 
for instance, most many people will take uh, ibuprofen or or um, Aleve, naproxen, sodium for pain, and they're really not good for pain at all. And they they relieve it temporarily, but they don't relieve the cause of the inflammation, and they destroy the body's ability, progressively destroy the body's ability to repair itself. But that's the way that people approach illness. They want an immediate change, an immediate improvement, and it doesn't happen. That's why uh, in, the, in the 2010 uh, Alzheimer's, World Alzheimer's Conference, the experts from all over the world came to the conclusion, and it's in the notes of the conference, that the current drugs used with Alzheimer's do not work. They're useless. In fact, my mother was on Aricep for two years. It did nothing for her. Right. Absolutely nothing. Right. Because it's too late. It's too late. Now, now we're trying to develop systems to diagnose Alzheimer's and other forms of senility when they're starting. But we actually know when they start. They start around about age 35. And one of the big things is, is the inflammation that builds up. But the brain's fairly tough, so it, it takes a long time to damage it sufficiently for it to impact memory and cognition. But if we changed our lifestyle at about 40 and stopped feeding the body garbage and did a little more exercise, I mean, it sounds so simple, but that's what it is, that, and, and stopped using... Uh, palliative drugs, then we would have far less Alzheimer's. And that's the conclusion of probably 400 of the top scientists in the world that I was with at Cambridge University last year. Michael, I didn't notice this in either one of the books, but do you notice that there's more aluminum in the air and also that aluminum is still being put in our mouths for dentistry? Any correlation when you went to those conferences? Was anything connected to that? Oh, there are many, many pollutants. Uh, that's one unfortunate part of our society, that we have polluted the air, the water, and the food. And the only thing you can do is to reduce your contact with them. Uh, for example, we, and I recommend to all my athletes, that they get a decent reverse osmosis system in their house, that they do not buy bottled water, which is not pure, that they fill, fill their, water, their bottles from their own house system that's been cleaned by a good reverse osmosis cleaner. It's unbelievable what's in the water now. Oh, it's terrible. You write about mitochondrial damage. Yes. And nitrous oxide damage. And I really think yes. this is so critical. I'd really like you to explain it to the audience. Well, um, the mitochondrial damage occurs from a large number of sources, but mainly from oxidation. Oxidation is, is impossible to avoid, but what we can do is eat the sort of foods that provide high levels of antioxidants, and the highest levels are in some of the fruits and vegetables. Or we can take antioxidants as supplements, but the food comes first. If you eat bad food and you take lots of supplements, it's not going to help you. The food comes first. Uh, so that, that's the first thing, to inhibit mitochondrial damage. There are certain supplements that I mentioned, uh, I have a list in the brain book that are very important. Uh, one of them is omega-3 fatty acids, 
and I'm sure people know about omega-3 from primarily from salmon and krill oil uh, that will reduce uh, the damage to the mitochondria. And then there are uh, other fairly simple things like R-plus lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine, but they're all covered in the book. Right. Um, those, those supplements, though, are only in addition to eating a decent diet. I think for a lot of people, there's so much confusion, and I know you talked about this in Nutrition for Champions, 100-Year Diet, but there's a lot of confusion about alkalinity versus being acidic. What is the bottom line on eating meat, which you also address? Well, meat is acidic, so it should be balanced by a larger proportion of fruit and vegetables. I mean, almost all breads and baked goods are acidic, so they're not they're not good foods. We've been we've been culturally conditioned to eat them, but they're not good foods. I think it was also interesting where you talked about how the four food groups that was a myth. Oh yes, yes, that was created by by industry to to sell cereal grains, which is the cheapest form of food that you can make. You have a very big emphasis on eating and honoring the DNA that has been around for a long time. Right. Uh, that's pretty simple. Um, if, if you go ask paleontologists, they'll tell you that there is, especially those that are physiologically oriented, that there is a 50,000-year lag in changing your DNA to suit the environment. Well, we've only had agriculture for um, 10,000, um, the very beginning of it, only 11,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. And our DNA has not had time to change to suit that. We're still 40,000 years too soon for us to eat the sort of food that is now produced by by food manufacturing. So it doesn't suit our DNA. What suits our DNA is what we had for hundreds of thousands of years before that, which was, was wild plants and wild animals and wild fish. It's a whole different paradigm to think about it that way. It is. That we're impacting our DNA when we eat or drink. But uh, I have hundreds of of people that have been on my system now for more than a quarter of a century. And that's a long time. And for the first 10 years, I sort of didn't really believe it. And then uh, when it got 15 and 20 years, and it, and it includes myself, I started to really believe it. When it got to 30 odd years, in my case, I absolutely know I'm in my 70s now, and I can do one-arm push-ups. I am totally healthy. I don't get colds or flus or anything like that, nor do most of my clients. And some of them are um, very very well-known celebrities and government people. You're in incredible shape, though. You work out. You have a whole system for working out, oh, which yeah. is in the new power program. Right. I want to talk a little bit about aspirin. Because a lot of people are told to take aspirin to prevent strokes, particularly yeah. women. Well, the reason that a very small amount of aspirin may inhibit stroke is because of its effects on what are called prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins uh, come in two sort of types. 
I won't go into it in great detail. They are hormone-like substances. That can, there's one that you might call a housekeeping prostaglandins that control various things like, uh, you know, the amount of mucus production in the heart, that sort of thing. And then there are inducible prostaglandins, that is, ones that are a part of our response to stress. They're an immune reaction. So when you're taking something like acetylsalicylic acid, aspirin, you have to take a very small amount, otherwise you interfere with the housekeeping prostaglandins. That's why it's very small. But when it, it, it only sort of puts a tiny rain on the stress prostaglandins, then it does reduce inflammation in the heart. That's interesting. And I don't think most of us know the details of that. No, and what you no. call a small amount of aspirin is what? A baby aspirin, like about 80 to 100 milligrams of aspirin. Uh, a normal aspirin is 325 milligrams. Got it. Why is there such a big thing about nitrous oxide? Well, nitrous oxide is a, a very important system in the body. And um, there are two types. One is, in, is the housekeeping and the other one's inducible. One is uh, takes care of, for instance, the diameter of your blood vessels. So it, it increases blood flow. And, and then the inducible does the same thing, but it's a response to stress. It's part of our fight-flight reaction. Um, if you induce too much of it, then you damage everything. So that's why uh, it's a balance system. And I would not take things that induce nitric oxide. Uh, that is the basis, of course, of Viagra, Cialis, and all those other drugs for the males because they increase blood flow. There's got to be another way, though, for them to do that. <laughs> yes, <I think> so. <laughs> Give them some turmeric and some ginger. Let's talk about the spices. I noticed yeah. that you had a whole piece on the different spices, turmeric, cinnamon, ginger, cloves, and capsaicin. From peppers, hot peppers. So you say there's no capsaicin in peppers. Why? Uh, not in the uh, ordinary red, green, and yellow peppers you get at the, at the grocery store. No, because it's been bred out of them. They, are, they have none left in them. The cultivars they're grown from have no longer any capsaicin in them. Only hot peppers have capsaicin. And how much do you take, doctor? Uh, I don't take it as, a, uh, as an amount. We eat, tend to eat um, spicy foods. And uh, we use pepper on pretty much everything. Uh, we use cayenne and we use hot peppers. And, uh, of course, curry spices and things that come in powder. You did a whole piece in your book, Save the Brain, on the calorie myth. I want you to share a little bit about that. I think that'll really awaken some people who are counting calories. Well, calories are something that are taught to school children uh, because you can take a piece of anything, a piece of cloth, a piece of wood, a piece of food, and you can burn it in a, in a little instrument called a calorimeter. And when you burn it, it produces a certain amount of heat. And that, that's how you measure calories. And it is a rough analogy of what happens in the body. When you eat food, um, it produces a certain amount of heat. 
that's the energy uh, it, it will produce. It keeps the body warm, for example. But it's, the body doesn't work like that because the body is not a calorimeter. The body is actually a nuclear fusion plant. And what it works by is the transfer of hydrogen ions from one place to another. And that is completely different from what happens in the calorimeter. So it's a very rough analogy. But people grow up from school and they still think in terms of food and calories. And that's why calories are on the food labels because it's what the public understands. But it's really got nothing to do with the way the body produces energy. So give an example of, in the new paradigm, how we would look at it in terms of energy burning. The best way is to look at the, at the way that we, we developed, uh, the way that we evolved. And the foods that uh, are best for us and produce the, the, the most energy and the most clean energy, which is really important, are the foods of the hunter-gatherer diet. And we come back to it again. Fruits, vegetables, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, preferably organic because they don't have any pesticides and other things on them, and wild fish and wild, wild meats, or grass-fed meats is the best most people can get. But what about the protein myth that we were cave people and we're supposed to eat meat and that's what the body really wants? Oh, right. What about that? Well, there were several waves of people that came out of Africa. The first wave that came out were the first, were not hugely long after they, they well, we came down from the trees. And we came down from the trees not because we chose to do so, but because the trees ceased to exist. The, and the Africa became actually frozen, and then uh, it became open plains. So we had no choice. The people that survived had to survive on meat, and they became carnivores. The first wave out of Africa were carnivores, pure and simple. But then, of course, the, the, the vegetation recovered somewhat, not a lot, but somewhat. So people started to eat uh, a lot of vegetation. And they, their genes changed over probably a million years. And uh, the next wave that came out was more of a mixed diet type of people. And their DNA reflected that. So when you say that we were cave dwellers and we ate meat, yes, we did. And we still have that tendency. But by the time the, the descendants of most, say, modern European peoples, and Americans came out of Africa. We were mixed-diet foragers. You've been a long-standing proponent of microfiltered whey protein. Yes. And in one of your books that I read on the right protein, you talked about how microfiltered whey protein is close to being bioidentical as possible or easily absorbable by the body. Yes. Correct me if I'm saying right, it wrong. that's correct. How come that is? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. Because cow's milk is only good for baby cows. It's not good for anything else. And there are no animals that drink milk after weaning, except ones that we teach to drink milk, like cats. Um, so the, the very tiny proportion of whey protein in milk 
just happens to have the chemical formula which is highly bioavailable to us. But we don't know exactly. It, it could be a coincidence. It could be an accident. But it's not like most of the protein in milk is casein. The amount of whey protein milk is very small, 0.03%, something like that. Most of the protein products on the market, it's not like measuring apples and apples. You really oh, have no. to look oh. deeply into what's in them. Yes. Well, a lot of them don't happen to mention that they've got calcium caseinate or sodium caseinate until about the third or fourth ingredient. Um, they, you would find, if you measure them, that they've got as much casein, which is the main protein milk, as they have whey. Because they're, uh, in labeling, you're allowed to put things of similar amount in the same in any order you want. So if there's 20% of whey in there, there'll be, uh, and it's, then it says calcium caseinate, there's going to be 20% of calcium caseinate as well. What do you think of the food labeling laws now as compared to when you started to publish? They are disastrous. They've got worse and worse. And I hope the next revision, which is just coming up, is going to do something about it because it's disastrous. The food labelers have made them into a way of fooling the public. Absolutely. Look at this high fructose corn syrup that's in almost all candy bars, yeah. potato chips, all these other types of products. And people think, quote, it's better. Isn't that shocking? Yes, it is. But it was called that high fructose because at the time when it was invented in the 1970s, fructose was thought to be good because it has a low glycemic index. Now we know that fructose is actually worse than glucose in terms of its effects on health. Have you ever heard of birch tree sugar? Yes, yes. It is said to have a totally different molecular structure and the body receives it very differently than any other type of sugar. Have you heard that? I've heard it. I, I don't know much about it. I mean, there are various trees that give sugar. Obviously, the biggest one is maple, uh, maple sugar. Uh, well, best known, and it does have a different molecular structure too. But uh, I, I can't really comment. I, I mean, I I don't think that sugar in it process any processed form is good for the body because the body quickly absorbs it and then spikes insulin, and it's the spiking of insulin that that gradually causes the metabolic syndrome with. With uh, the metabolic syndrome now includes cardiovascular disease, senility, various forms of cancer, uh, uh, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. I was shocked to read the suggestion to drink coffee. Do you remember how we used to be told not to? Yes. Years ago? Explain that to the public. That was fascinating. The earlier studies were not that good on on coffee. Um, as, as a stimulant, it is a very, very good stimulant compared to, to uh, most others. And it is, of course, the most popular drink in the world. Uh, I'm just, just writing a book now on the power program for runners, which I have a whole chapter on coffee and how to use it. And uh, there, are the, there are a couple of problems with it, but but uh, more than three cups a day, it gets less and less beneficial. But up to three cups a day, there is very strong evidence that 
coffee prevents Parkinson's disease. I saw that. That was pretty amazing. My cousin died of Parkinson's disease. Got it like 30 years ago. Mm. She may have even been one of the first cases. Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, it's like a... Uh, uh, you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are much the same, except they take different routes. One affects the dopamine system, one affects the acetylcholine system. But they're both very, very slow diseases. They don't happen suddenly. They happen over 30 years. Are you a resveratrol advocate? Yes. Is it true there's different types of resveratrol? Yes, there are several different types. The... the um, the Evidence that convinced me is the extension of life in certain animals by the use of resveratrol. And that's pretty good because now we have the molecular science. Since the genomics started in around around about 2000 and then we had the characterization of the human genome in 2003, now we have this genomic science which can pinpoint the molecular effect of resveratrol or other any other chemical, and it affects a gene called SIRT1, S-I-R-T-1, which is dubbed in, in genomic circles the longevity gene. And it ha- they have uh, now uh, extended the life of the, the usual model fruit flies and then lizards and fish and mammals. Aren't there a lot of companies selling it? How do we know what we're supposed to look for when we buy it? Yes, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, one of the large pharmaceutical companies has just abandoned a $100 million project to produce a resveratrol drug. It's quite tough. The molecule is quite complex. And uh, the only thing that you can hope for is that you may produce it from, that, that people produce it from, say, grape skins or something like that, and then it's likely to be the right thing. But most of it's actually produced from a Japanese weed. And what does that mean to us then? Well, I, I don't know if it's the same molecular structure. I honestly don't. That's why the apples to oranges and digging into the details is very important. It is extremely dif- difficult. And for the public, it's... Well, for me, as a biochemist, it is extraordinarily difficult to actually get a substance that is pure and right and the molecular structure is right. And there are thousands, most, most people do not know this, but most chemicals are now produced in China and India and Taiwan. Uh, and, uh, Taiwan. When you say chemicals, do you mean any of the health substances or do you mean supplements? No, I mean everything. Okay. including the drugs, including all of our, our um, prescription drugs. Most of them are produced in those countries. People don't know that. I can see why, can't you? Yes, exactly. It's all about the economy of scale of profit, so that's a way yes. to make that go into the quantum realm. But right now, America and Canada are suffering a shortage of some common antibiotics and other prescription drugs because... There is a there is a, a labor problem and a dispute problem going on in India. Don't you think that with a lot of the problem products that have come out of China, even though people in different countries get this huge economy of scale financially to produce products in China, 
that when it comes to anything related to products that you're taking or foods, let's say for the animal industry, for the vet industry, to be wary of pharmaceuticals coming out of China? Am I wrong to think that? You're absolutely right. Now, in, in our newsletter that you can find on colganinstitute.com, uh, I've written about some of the drugs and some of the problems that have now got the uh, American legislature rewriting the rules uh, because some of the drugs, especially the prescription drugs, are not up to standard. I think that that's one of the problems that we've seen even with, let's say, dog and cat food, Oh, let alone I mean, that, that other level, area. <laughs> at that level, I don't think that there is very much control at all. Not to go in to do a whole thing on this, but the GMO foods and organisms yes. that Monsanto is really trying to own all food and seeds by 2050. Mm-hmm. And my question to you is, are you familiar with the new law that passed? The USDA just granted the genetically modified food industry the opportunity to coexist with organic foods? Yes. Yeah, I, um, I'm pretty much against genetically modified organisms, primarily because when you modify one gene, you can't help but affect other processes. But I can't see the world being fed without genetically modified food, not even 20 years hence. Explain what you mean. Well, we have developed an agribusiness now which depends on very, very precise monocultures. And if you, say, get a genetically modified corn that doesn't get the bugs and various things and is, uh, doesn't uh, respond to the pesticides that are used to keep other things down, then your yield is going to be much higher. And right now, as we're seeing in the Middle East, the price of food is going through the roof. And uh, there is a unless we make some very drastic changes in the way that we do agriculture, there's not going to be enough food around even in 20 years. You know, I would tend to agree with you except for one part of that, and that is that this organization and others like them have been betting on this and slowly but surely systematically wiping out farmers in all nations of the world so that they can't function and grow things without those kind of foods. I think that is deplorable. It's absolutely deplorable. I've seen it happening in Canada even. Um, And it's, uh, I don't know how you go about stopping it. We we only eat organic, uh, my family and I, but we're fortunate. I did a piece with Jeffrey Smith, who's a worldwide educator in the area of GMO, and it was extremely illuminating to read his books and to find out the level at which this is becoming infrastructure around the world. Oh, yeah. And taking over the infrastructure, really taking over the agribusiness and controlling it literally at a molecular level, no pun intended. Can we talk about NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? Right, sure. People use 300 million doses a day in the United States, according to figures I have. The, one, the things you can buy over the counter now, uh, including ibuprofen and naproxen, which are probably the two strongest over the counter, uh, are dreadful for the body because of their side effects. They're absolutely destructive. And any rheumatologist would be happy to tell you that it's the same thing. Uh, but there's nothing else. There is no effective 
treatment for arthritis. So all we can do is symptomatic relief. And that's what people do um, every single day. And they, it works. But the major problem is that it uh, reduces, destroys the immune response so that you, you need your immune response in order to take away the dead tissue that occurs in inflammation and in injury. And if you take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, they reduce this immune response right down. That's why you don't get so much pain or swelling or inflammation. But in doing so, the dead tissue stays where it is. And then the new live tissue grows around it, deformed, and with holes in it. So gradually, over a period of years, you get deformed muscle, tendon, ligaments, joints, cartilage, and it's irreversible. Any rheumatologist has to face this on a daily basis. And that's why they always try to keep the amount, the, the dosage, as low as possible, compatible with the person being able to move around. I know people who live on ibuprofen. Yes. I've seen some of the results over many, many years of athletes who routinely use non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to improve their performance because it cuts down pain. You know what would be very interesting? There's a gentleman named Clint Ober who came up with something called earthing. And he had been working with athletes around the world to reground them to their electrical bodies by being barefoot and by using certain types of products when they're in the Tour de France, for example. Mm -hmm. And they found that it reduced inflammation of their bodies a lot. It would be interesting to have you both on the show at one point. Very, very <laughs> interesting. Because I have a, a system where, uh, that... I'm just writing a book about now called The Anti-Inflammatory Athlete because if you can get rid of inflammation, you've got it made. This is huge. This is really, really huge, and it's something that's available. But what they found over time is that as people disconnected their electrical bodies by being in shoes, by being on asphalt, by being away from actually getting the groundedness from the earth. And when I first heard this, I thought, oh, this is metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. But then I read the book. Wow. Fascinating. And they have study after study after study and in all different fields and particularly athletes. I'm a former tournament tennis player of 13 years. I was very interested in some of what they're doing with athletes. And I think it'd be an interesting thing to examine and to look at regarding reducing inflammation and pain. Yes, I'm, I'm not averse to that because we are really an electrochemical system that uh, depends on the currents that are flowing through us. But my, my limited, very limited knowledge of it is, is that it's very difficult to control. But I like the idea because it's simply taking us back to what we used to be when we evolved, feet on the earth. And the fact that it's accessible to us and there's a way to know if you're actually getting grounded or not, there's a way to actually verify yes or no, is that happening? I'm I like sure. that. I love the evidence-based stuff. Oh, uh, your, uh, your, uh, the electrical fields in your body change dramatically if you stand barefoot on the ground. I used to do a demonstration of this when I taught in medical school with the students at second year, 
showing them the change in electrical fields if you ground yourself. Well, let's get grounded. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about two more things. One is you are a big, big proponent of potassium. I had a potassium awakening reading your books. Oh, good. (laughs) And did we get it wrong about potassium? I think most of us believe we have to have more magnesium. Can you explain this? You only have to look at food. Even even a, a fresh spring salmon right out of the sea is still six times potassium to one part sodium. But we have reversed that, and we now add 80% of all salt in food is added to it. So that, that gives you an idea. Um, and we have, we, develop, we have a cellular structure. Our cellular structure is such that Inside the cell, there's 30 times more potassium than outside, and the cell tries to keep it that way. Now, if you continually eat food that are higher, foods that are higher in sodium than potassium, which is the case in the, with modern processed food, then you change that balance and the cell doesn't work very well. See, I thought that was really, really critical to hear. Yes. Really, really critical to hear. And I also thought it was neat to hear about Avocados, for example, have so much potassium in them. I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> yes. yes, I did that little potassium list. Yeah, fun, but... that's great. That was great. You said bread was never the staff of life. Right. People are not going to believe that. Explain oh, of it. Of course they're not, because they've, for hundreds of years now, they've been taught that bread is the staff of life. But in fact, there was no bread when we were evolving, none whatsoever. And people say, oh, yes, but there were grains. The grains that have existed when we were evolving were virtually inedible. They were small, bitter things. All of the grains that we have now have been developed for agriculture. So we didn't have built into our DNA anything about bread or cereals. But bread and cereals, the bread and cereal producers have been very smart and have managed to keep their lobbying up so that bread and cereals are right up to the 1990s were the basis of the USDA food pyramid. You ate six to 11 servings a day. You say on page 31 of Nutrition for Champions, the 100-Year Diet, under buns in the oven, you said cultivation, harvesting, and cooking of grains did not begin until about 10,000 years ago in what is now Turkey. That's correct, yes. Rough bread became easy to make. It provided energy and a full belly with a lot less effort than hunting. Flour could also be stored against lean winters when foragers went empty-handed. Right. And then you talk about this evolution. Yes. So it's not this natural thing that is the staff of life. No, not at all. In fact, it was only called the staff of life about 2,500 years ago. And then it was publicized as the staff of life as the Catholic religion developed. Okay. So where are you at about rice then? Billions of people around the world rely on rice as part of their mainstay diet. They do, and millions of people also rely on bread. And it does keep them alive, but it doesn't keep them lively. I like that distinction. 
I really like that distinction. Do you eat rice at all? No, pretty much not. I mean, uh, I don't mind a few little grains now and then, but I don't eat rice as a meal, no. How do you get your energy from working out as much as you do? I eat fruits and vegetables. Didn't they tell all the people who were lifting weights, Michael, for years that you have to supplement with more protein and animal-based protein in order to be able to deal with weightlifting? (laughs) Well, some of the strongest mammals that are fairly closest to us are the great apes. They eat mostly fruits and vegetables. It's really shocking to hear this. (laughs) I I have some people that I train who are runners who are ultra-distance runners. That is, they run 100 miles. And they, some of, there's a whole group of them that only eat fruit and vegetables. That's the only foods they eat. And they can run 100 miles, nonstop. That's pretty remarkable. Yes. Where are you at regarding juicing and all these green drinks that have exploded all over the place? I don't like them because they take the, the juice out of context and therefore it becomes higher glycemic. So you mean juicing or you mean the green drinks? I mean the juice. The green drinks uh, are sometimes mixtures of of various herbs. Um, Usually after I've tried one, I think I better get out the hedge clippers again. (laughs) I could sell my hedge clippers. been your biggest opponents or people that took an issue with what you're doing and what you're saying? Oh my goodness, there must be thousands of people that take issue. I don't mind people having an alternative view. Uh, I just go with the science. But um, Well, over the last 30 years, I must say it has changed dramatically. Now I'm invited to top conferences at, at top universities, whereas the sort of thing that I would say 20, 30 years ago, they would poo-poo at at university level. Isn't that true that academia fights harder, almost as hard as industry? Oh, yes, yes. I I believe the status quo is the holy grail for many universities. I see that you're not for farmed fish. Now, even Trader Joe's has farmed fish there that you can select. Yes. That are very inexpensive, and I've told people, do not eat farmed right. fish. Why? Uh, well, because they're not fed on the sort of food that fish grow on. They're, a lot of them are fed grains, and especially corn. These are, this is not, and the corn turns up as you know, carbon atoms in their flesh and various other things, and the fats that they have in their body are not the um, long-chain six-carbon omega-3 fats that uh, are found in wild fish. You also talked about the huge amount of toxins that are in farmed fish, and I really want you to name the names because for consumers, we don't know this. Right. Um, Well, I I think in one of the books, it may be the book, I gave a graph of the... uh, toxins found by the Canadian government measuring the various farmed fish. It's pretty frightening. You said there's a huge pile of evidence that farmed fish are contaminated with 
polybrominated diphenyls, PBDs, yeah, dioxins, pesticides, yeah. mostly from their feed. Figures. I mean, these are the government figures. It's an unfortunate byproduct of trying to raise a wild animal in a tiny little pond. You get all of the industrial uh, pollutants that go, that is in the the food that they get, give them, which is is fairly low grade cereal grains, and and the um, water and the land around it. What do you think of coconut oil? Not much. I think the coconut oil people have responded very strongly to criticisms of the saturated nature of coconut oil and brought out some of its its good features. But um, I like it on the skin. I don't eat it because it's pretty strong to taste. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think it does your skin any harm. No. Are you going to run a marathon? I haven't run one for a long while now. Not since I was 61. That's pretty remarkable, even at 61. Yeah. I run shorter distances. Do you think that most of us should be testing our blood pressure or have a blood pressure test every day or every week once we're a certain age? No, I, I believe that people use lots of testing systems in order to be able to continue a faulty lifestyle. Oh, I'll have these cookies now and I'll have this beer but then I'm going to test my blood pressure tomorrow morning. I, I, I believe that occasional tests are okay, but they're not an excuse for living a faulty lifestyle. Do you get tested? Do you have your blood drawn? Do you have certain tests that you take once a year or once every few years? Are there certain I only things? get it done every couple of years because it doesn't change that much. But, uh, yes, we have a list of things that we do for our own patients. And what about getting your brain tested? How do you test for brain health? You. Oh, well, they say if you go to a site called positscience.com, you can test yourself on a one of the tests that comes from one of the certified brain stimulation programs, and it's called the Brain Speed Test. It's very illuminating. <laughs> now, do you mean good illuminating or questionable illuminating? Well, it gives you where you should be for your age, and it gives you the the, the line that you should be up uh, above or on. And uh, usually people are not as good as they thought they were. Do you think that anti-aging medicine is expensive? Yes, very expensive. Why? Very expensive. I think because it is not part of any public health policy. Anti-aging is not a disease. It is not treated under the medical system. It's a hodgepodge of various things now that people make money from. Do you think that we should be taking growth hormone? No. The major problem with growth hormone is you take an aging system and you then pump into it a fairly strong stimulant. I mean, it's not a stimulant that makes you high, but it's a stimulant for a lot of organs. And so you take this aging organ and you say, I'm going to make you run around the block three times. And I don't think that's a good idea. If you are 
someone who's been on an anti-aging regimen and you exercise religiously and you're not overweight and you people say to you, wow, you look so much younger than you are, there may be, it may be able to extend that a bit, but only if you're in good shape first. The idea, which is very common in America, of somebody in bad shape going and getting a growth hormone series is ludicrous. It doesn't make you more muscular, but it's synthetic muscularity, correct? Well, no, it, it will make you a bit more muscular. But if you're in, as many, many people are, are, in bad shape before you go to the clinic and get it, they're not going to refuse you. They are going to suggest that you change your diet and do various things, but they're still going to give you growth hormone and impose it on a system that is sick, and that's not a good thing. Are you a proponent of natural cleansing of the liver, gallbladder, kidneys? Do you... well, I think the body is a very good cleansing system itself. You do? If you eat bad food, then you're going to have these you know, problems. Uh, the whole of the, the antacid industry, $7 billion a year and rising fast, is, is based on people eating wrong food. Without, without the wrong food there, there would be no antacid industry. Um, if you eat the wrong food, then you sh there is a reason to try and cleanse yourself out occasionally by stopping eating it and doing what vegetable juices or something for a few days. But if you eat good food, if you eat a good diet, you don't, I don't think I've ever used an antacid. Your cleansing system, your kidneys, your liver, your gallbladder, they're all going to be fine. They're not going to make, it's not going to make any difference to them. What do you think about the new D3 explosion of knowledge? The D3? D3. If you can't get the sun's energy on your body 30 to 45 minutes a day. I actually wrote a paper for the Canadian government on vitamin D, and they've recently uh, doubled their RDA for it. That's great. Oh, it is. It's wonderful. Um, yes, I know Michael Hollick, who's, who's written, who's a the world expert on vitamin D and has written three or four books on it. And uh, he advocates the taking of 3,000 IU per day. Yeah, that's like a minimum, I think. Oh, that's what he advocates as a general supplement for people, 3,000 IU. If he advocates any more, they'll just shut him down. The FDA well, will shut him down. Uh, the, the U.S. RDA is still 400 IU. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. <laughs> How many years off or in the Pleistocene era is the RDA? How off is it? Well, it's based on science in the 1950s, and it hasn't changed since. Yeah, so I would imagine that the whole matrix is off, 60 oh, years yeah. off plus. Yes, yes, but it's it's defense of the status quo, which is, you know, academia's um, really, as I said, their holy grail is defend the status quo at all costs. If people want to come and train with you and learn how to work out, you have a totally different workout program and system, I think, than anybody in the whole world. <laughs> well, it's it's used fairly well around the world now, but uh, it's it's simply based on the way the body is designed. The body is designed to work in a certain way. This, all movements, for example, are rotational in the body. So if you don't do rotational movements when you're trying to exercise, then you are defeating part of the physiological purpose of the exercise. So even when you buy the new power program book, 
you still, even though you have photos in that book and articulate descriptions of what to do, it's still different than doing it in person with somebody who's trained. Oh, much different, yes. we have, I mean, the, the book itself is the basic, very basic stuff. How many training programs do you do a year in, is it Salt Springs? Uh, yes, we usually have two camps a year where people come and stay here for four days. I'll bet they don't want to leave. <laughs> no, a lot of them don't. You said that Salt Springs, when people come, they often don't want to leave. It's an extraordinary thing, but the first thing that happens is after three or four days, people start going and looking at properties. <laughs> Where are Salt Springs near? Give us a sense. Oh, it's just off the foot of Vancouver Island. It's really a continuation of the San Juan Islands up from uh, from um, Seattle. Now, you're from New Zealand. You and your wife are from New Zealand. Yeah. Do you miss it? Well, Salt Spring is actually a very similar country. <laughs> <laughs> similar in what way? Oh, the trees and the land and the temperature. And... Because a lot of people love New Zealand, just go crazy. Yeah. They love well, New I, Zealand. I believe that Canada is just as beautiful. It's in a different way, but I mean, not the cities, but out on the islands is very beautiful. What's new with the Colgan Institute in terms of discovery or any type of activities that you're involved with that you would like to share? Probably the thing that we're developing the most is the brain program, uh, a supplement to inhibit the degeneration of the brain as you age. And being fairly successful with it, I was very surprised that my book, Save Your Brain, has been written, has been read by a lot of academics and I get quite a lot of because it was written for the general public, and I get quite a lot of uh, invites to speak based on that book. I love the diagrams that you have in your books. They're hysterical. <laughs> They're great. It's one of the signatures of your books. Not only do you write and explain everything, but your diagrams really help, and your photos really help, and some of them are really funny, really, really funny. So I really want to thank you for joining us on the show today and would love to have you back before seven years. Well, I hope so, Kim, yes. Uh, perhaps when I'm 75. <laughs> and really want to thank you for taking your time to join us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, listening to, and learning from Dr. Michael Colgan, the founder of the Colgan Institute at colganinstitute.com, the author of so, so many books today. We've been talking about Save Your Brain and Nutrition for Champions, The 100-Year Diet, Thank you so much for joining us.